morning. Um, so it's Psalm chapter 8, verse 5 to 14. Um, friends, who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? She, under the apple tree, arose you. There your mother conceived you, there she who was in labor gave you birth. Place me like a sail over your heart, like a sail on your arm. For love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as a grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Friends, we have a little sister, and her breasts are not yet grown. What shall we do for our sister on the day she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. If she is a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. She, I am a wall, and my breasts are like towers. Thus, I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. Solomon had vineyard in Baalhamon. He let out his vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels for silver. But my own vineyard is mine to give. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon, and two hundred are for those who tend its fruit. He you who dwell in the gardens with friends in attendance, let me hear your voice. She, come away, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. Thanks, Alex. Good morning, everyone. My name's Johnny. It's, uh, I haven't met you. It's really great to, to have you with us. Let's pray together before we, uh, before we get into the Song of Songs again. Yeah, Lord, thank you for that privilege Johnny has reminded us of, that we have been able to publicly open and read uh, in a language that most of us are comfortable with and familiar with, your word, the words of God to us. And please now, Lord, would you speak through my words? Would you speak into each of our hearts by your spirit who is present there? And would you please show us the great love with which you have loved us. Amen. Amen. Now, love is very much a, a slogan of, of our day and time, isn't it? In the, in the age of the sexual revolution, our, po- our popular songs proclaim, all you need is love. And our popular TV programs, uh, reality programs, are a love island and are obsessed with this idea of love. And our protests and our campaigns cry out, love not war and love is love. You won't find many people today, if anyone, who denies the importance and the value and the beauty of love. But what do we mean by the word love? Do we even know? Are we all agreed? For something that seems so important to us, so talked about, perhaps it's one of the least understood things and certainly not put into practice too well. In, in a, uh, a Time magazine article a few years back called We Are Defining Love the Wrong Way, uh, a guy called Rabbi David Wolpe got hold of this idea, and, and he wrote that normally love, we would think of it and define it as feelings. 
It's about our affection or our desire or, or pleasure. And the problem is, you see, when we define love like that, very quickly it becomes about love for self. So when I say something like, I love ice cream, okay, what I'm not really saying, it's not really about ice cream at all, but it's all about me. And I like what ice cream makes me feel and the taste and whatever else it is. And, and actually, it's a love for self where the Bible speaks of an altogether, altogether different quality of love because of the God who is love. And Wolp, this guy who writes this article, taps into this idea. And he suggests a better definition of love than just about what you feel. He says is enacted emotion. That's emotion that's put into actions to both feel but also to act lovingly. And I would add that to do that, you need to know what is good for another. And you need to seek that good, even when, especially when it's costly to you. So it's sacrificial enacted emotion. That is true love. Now, Martin Luther King Jr. tapped into uh, the idea of the importance uh, of, of, of this idea of love. And, and he said this, we must discover the power of love, the redemptive power of love. And when we do that, we will make of this old world a new world for love is the only way. I think he's right. I think love properly understood and love properly practiced will remake the world. It's the only way. And we must discover that kind of love. Here's the question. Where do we discover that kind of love? Where do we discover the power of that kind of love, that kind of redemptive love that turns bad things to good, that makes a new world from this old broken one? Well, this is where the Song of Songs comes in. Not the most popular book of the Bible in recent times, and I know some of us in this church haven't been that ecstatic that we've chosen to teach it recently. But in previous times, let, let me tell you this, it was pretty much the most popular book in the Bible. Okay? From, the, uh, from about the 4th to the 11th century, we have six commentaries today on the book of Galatians. We have four commentaries on the book of Romans. We have 32 on the Song of Songs. A guy called Bernard of Clairvaux in the 12th century preached 88 sermons on the song to the monks in the monastery. And get this, not one mention of sex. Not once. 88 sermons. But they are monks after all. You see, Christians used to love this book so much. It was so dear to them because it revealed to them the depths and the color with which God loved them. The God who is love. You know, there's so much in life, isn't there, that can, can convince every one of us, maybe even stuff you're walking through right now, that convinces us that God doesn't love you. Or God doesn't love you well. Well, let me say that the song smashes that unbelief to pieces. It celebrates and it introduces us to a love from out of this world and a love that can make not only this world new, but can renew our very hearts and our lives. Now, the way that the song helps us to grasp this great love of God for us is through this poetry and through all of this imagery of this beautiful love relationship between this couple, this man and this woman. And it's through grasping the imagery and the metaphors of this strange and distant culture, admittedly, that we get this beautiful vision of this perfect and idealized love relationship, which is only ultimately fulfilled in Christ in the church. 
Well, listen, that presents some challenges for us. And, and those of us who have been here week after week have seen this. All of us carry within us deep pains and frustrations and even regrets in this area of our lives. And, and what the Song of Songs pr- presents to us certainly isn't a popular thing as far as a, a vision for, for sex and relationships in our culture, in our day, in our moment. But I do think it's really helpful for us. Because as we tap into those things, the song is bringing to those places, to those pains and those frustrations, to those regrets, those deepest places of us, the deep love of Christ. And by the power of the Spirit, it's bringing the love of Christ to minister to us there. So as we pick up the, uh, the story today, and indeed we close the story today, we're in the closing scene. Uh, and it's the final journey of this couple Uh, this couple who are in love from verse 5, the wilderness, to verse 13 to 14, the garden. And it's like the final song in a musical. You know, at the end of a musical, all of the, all of the cast come back on the stage for the final, uh, for the final song. Uh, and it kind of often draws together all the threads of the story. And that's what's happening here. This couple have now grown old together, I think. And the separation of death is approaching. And as you probably do as you get to that point of life, you think back over your lifetime. And together they reminisce on their lifetime of love. And so we join with this couple today for the final time. And as we do that, what we do is we delve into great wisdom on love from this older, mature couple. And for the final time, they point us to a love that will renew our lives. A love that comes from out of this world. And we're going to see it in kind of three, three ideas or three points. And the first one is this, the power of love, verses 5 to 7. If, if, if I ask you to visualize in your mind a scene that depicts the great power of love, what is the most outlandish and amazing vision of love that you could kind of picture in your mind? I wonder what you would think of. An old friend of mine made a pretty extravagant marriage proposal that made the, the newspapers. Uh, it was so, so out there. Um, you can ask me about it later, but it involved a cow. Um, so, yeah, exactly. Um, and you might think, well, uh, you know, that's an image of extravagant love, an extravagant proposal, uh, making the, 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 you know, the papers. Or, or perhaps better still, you might think of one moment of incredible sacrifice by someone for another, you know, someone who, who lays down their life to protect uh, another person or other people. And indeed, they could well be uh, pictures of love. But what about this? What about a husband? who's faithfully married to his wife for, let's say, 50 years. And then he devotedly and kindly nurses and cares for her for 10 years through many sad and difficult illnesses as old age encroaches on her body in her last decade, right up until the day she dies. I want to suggest that is a compelling image of the power of love. As we close out the song, here we are with this lover and this beloved, and they're coming up from the wilderness together in verse 5. And we've seen a scene like this before. In chapter 3, there was the wedding procession coming up from from the wilderness on their way to the wedding. And and there we saw all the promise of his love, bringing her um, from and through the wilderness of life and promising her this flourishing garden of their shared future together. But this time, in in 8 verse 5, as they come up out of the wilderness, she's leaning on him. 
And, you know, you can lean on someone in intimacy, but you can also lean on someone in reliance if you're weak or if you're ill or if you're debilitated in some way. And, and so I think the image for us is this couple in old age and in her elderly state, she relies on and, and leans on him each step of the way as he continues to support and care for her through life in this world. And as they stumble through later life together, her leaning on and leaning into him, she remembers back to the early days of their relationship, the love of their youth. When, when, um, when, when, uh, when she first roused him under the apple tree. This isn't a literal physical place, but, but it's imagery in that time we've seen in the song for, for, for protection and provision and indeed also an image for the fruitfulness of their relationship in their early days. And this leads her to reflect on, on the generational nature of love. She goes on to remember his mum who conceived and bore him and, and this idea of love being passed from one generation to the next. Despite what our society tells us, our love lives are not private matters. They're not things just for our personal preference and our individual expression. How we conduct ourselves in this sphere, the choices we make, they are deeply meaningful to others around us, to our family, to our friends, to our church, to our society at large from one generation to the next. These things were embedded in, in a much bigger picture. Well, well, this leads her to reflect on the power of love that has lasted all these years. Pick up with me in, in verse 6 and 7. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Now for me, this is possibly the most beautiful love poem ever written by this wise old woman who's walked the, uh, the path of love for many Yes. She expresses here the power of love in these four pairs of, of images. Uh, the first one is the seal placed on, on, on the heart and on the arm. And, and in their day, you put a seal on something to um, identify it as your possession. It is yours. But also the seal was the thing by which you made a binding commitment, like, a, you know, like maybe in, in the old days here, a signet ring, your seal. And so here it's expressed as a physical depiction of love. Maybe it's like our wedding ring physical depiction of my love for my wife and her love for me shows the belonging and the commitment. She wants to be a seal over his heart and a, and a seal on his arm. Yes, there is feelings, his most treasured possession in his heart, but also there is love in action. The arm represents the, the action of a person, his public binding commitment. And the second image of, of the power of love is, is death. Death, which is said to be the ultimate statistic, one out of one of us die. And the sad reality of death is its permanence. You could call it jealous and unyielding, you see, because once death has got hold of you, it doesn't let you go. But she says, well, not in the ordinary course of things, but she says love is as strong as death is. Jealousy, unyielding as a grave. This is a love that gets hold of you. And when it's got hold of, hold of you, it does not let you 
go. It is unyielding and unrelenting. This is a love that even death can't break. Many of us know that kind of love in our own personal experience. We often think of jealousy as a negative thing, don't we? And often it is when when it's directed to someone or something that isn't rightfully ours. But when jealousy is expressed as zeal and passion of a lover for a beloved that knows and seeks their good, it is a perfectly good and right thing. It is a beautiful thing. Third pair of images are fire. Love that burns like a blazing fire, like an almighty flame. It's a beautiful depiction here of of passion as well as, as, as power. Something so good as fire and yet must be handled with respect. That taps into something, doesn't it? If you see the footnote, actually, uh, it's certainly in these red Bibles, it says it could read like the very flame of the Lord, literally God's flame. This is the only direct reference to God in this whole book. And even here, it's pretty suggestive. But it taps into something the God who is love, who Scripture describes uh, and often depicts as a consuming fire, who burns with perfect holiness and goodness. This God who is full of passion and of power so good and yet to be rightly respected and and the fourth pair of images of the power of love are the waters it's the great waters that can't quench this love they can't they can't sweep it away if you've ever been in the waves of the sea or in a fast flowing river you know the great power of water And in the imagery of the Bible, the waters represent the chaos and the threats of life in the world and the place where evil comes from. And so this is saying even the great threats of chaos of life and evil and anything else, they're no match for the power of this love. It will not be quenched. It will not be swept away, whatever may come to pass. And so she concludes in verse 7. I would do anything for love. In fact, you just can't put a price on it. This love is priceless. Any attempt to buy this kind of love, even if a rich person sold all of their wealth and sold their house so they could purchase this love, well, they would be scorned, wouldn't they? It's just an idea to scorn. You can't buy love like this. I I think the challenge to us is whether our love, whether it's expressed in marriage or in family, or or in friendships, or indeed to neighbor, people unknown to us personally, does our love have this kind of power? If we're honest with ourselves, our love is not always that powerful. Sometimes the flame of our love burns bright and hot, and sometimes it's just a cool ember. There are times when it is quenched and even swept away in a tide of anger or selfish or bitterness. You know, sometimes when I see the weakness and lack of love that I have for my own wife, the person who I have most promised to love in this world, my own children, my own flesh and blood, I'm astounded at myself. I hope we are inspired by this poem and we want to grow in the power of our love for others. It ought to do that. But listen, it's not about our love. We cannot 
and we will not discover in in and of ourselves a love that redeems and a love that renews uh, our, our relationships and our own lives, let alone the whole world. The song is ultimately about the love of God and his love that is expressed for us uh, in and through and given to us in Christ. Christ is the one who loved us to death and back. The one who broke the power of the grave by his love. This is the God who burns with a jealous love and an unyielding desire for the good of his people. This is the the one on whom we can lean on through life's troubles and, and, and the deserts of life. This is the one who has given us the seal of his love in our hearts by the spirit whom he has given to us. His love is a love that can't be quenched by any doubt, can't be drowned by any situation or any sorrow or any difficulty. It cannot be defeated by any enemy. This is the love that the song speaks to us of. And what shall ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? The answer is nothing and no one. So what are we to do when we're finding it hard to love others? What am I to do when the power of my love is draining away? Well, how about this? To feel again, to know again the warmth of the blazing love of God. For it to warm my heart and to soften my heart and to renew and empower me as someone who can love in this kind of way and with this kind of power. A love in action for the good of others that renews lives and renews the world. That's the power of love. It's the power of love. And the second one is this, the preciousness of love. Verses 8 to 12. Now in the context of romantic relationships and marriage, love of this kind, that powerful, is truly priceless and it is greatly precious so it is to be honored and it is to be upheld it's even to be protected but it's not to be idolized Uh, that's what what i think the the woman and her brothers reflect on in, in in the next section this type of deep love that can't be bought and can't be sold is also a love that ought not be given away cheaply in our relationships it's to be protected particularly in the vulnerable. So, so the brothers come in here, and they're given the title friends in verse 8, but, but it becomes apparent that it's her brothers speaking. And they remember back to when their sister was a young girl before puberty, and, and she's depicted either as a city wall that, that keeps people out, or, or alternatively a door that, that, if you like, lets people in. And it's kind of imagery for kind of her romantic life and, and, and relationships. Which will she be? They're recognizing here the importance of protecting a vulnerable and and, and young girl from this kind of romantic love, which is so precious until she is of age. And sadly, it's deeply, sadly true that some of us know the great destruction that comes on our lives when we're exposed to certain things and certain experiences that we did not choose at at too tender an age. Her brothers are by no means perfect. We've seen that in in, in the song already. But they seem to do an okay job of protecting their little sister. We read in verse 10 that she is a wall. 
And it's only at the right time when she has reached fullness of age that she enters into this romantic relationship of love with her husband. And so through that, she brings him great contentment and peace. You know, there is a great joy and there is a great blessing when God's vision for sexuality is upheld. There is also great grace and great restoration in and through Christ when our experiences of these things fall short of God's vision and plan for us for whatever reason. We've got to kind of hold the two. We need to uphold the vision that God gives us and we need to receive the grace. Each and every one of us needs grace in these things. But I also think there's a helpful word here for, for parents, those of us who are parents, about how we raise our kids. Don't know about you, but I want my kids to know how precious they are and how precious their bodies are and how precious their love is. I want them to grow up to be careful in these things and yet not scared of them. When I think of my girls, I think, well, they, they don't need like a, a shotgun dad who scares off any potential suitors with his like angriness, you know, or whatever else. No, they need a much harder thing for me than that. They need me to raise them like a war. They need me to raise them like strong and godly women who have high standards for what a young man must show himself to be before they will give themselves to him within marriage. They need me to raise them as women who are discerning and courageous and godly, who know how to guard their own heart, who take due care and attention as they navigate relationships. And so they honor both themselves and others in how they navigate these relationships, honoring how precious them and their love is. I think there's something for us to get to grips with here as parents in our culture and in our day and age. You see, this, this romantic, this sexual love that's depicted in the song is a gift to be given and not taken. It is to be valued and honored. So in verse 11, uh, the woman goes on to compare her approach to, that, uh, to love uh, to that of, of Solomon. And Solomon is kind of representing here the, the, the approach to love of the ancient kings and, and the powerful people of the day. And, and remember in the song, the image of a vineyard is, is, is an image of, of someone's body or their very self. And so we read that, that Solomon's vineyard goes to the highest bidder. In fact, it goes to many bidders. He lets out to many tenants for a price. He marries hundreds of wives for pleasure and for political alliances. Love is bought and sold. It's traded like a commodity. It's used and abused by people to get what they want and to get ahead. Whereas her, on the other hand, her vineyard is hers to give. And she does not give it for a price. She only gives her love away with due care and attention for she knows how precious and how priceless both it and she is. Now this taps into something I think is really important for many of us. This shows us why the sacrifice of godly singleness is such an incredible and a beautiful thing. If marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, in that through marriage it depicts the love of Christ for the church, then singleness is a living and breathing depiction of the sufficiency of the gospel and the sufficiency of Christ for us. The single person who follows God's design for relationships not only honors how precious this sexual love is, but willfully, if very sacrificially, and at times very painfully, I know, in not engaging in this kind of stuff outside of marriage, 
But far more significantly and importantly, he shows that God is enough and his love is enough. Now, we just need to say that as an absolutely beautiful and inspiring thing. That is a gift. A sacrifice of godly singleness that is offered to God, which I believe brings great delight to him. It is an inspiration to others in the church. As someone puts Christ above all else. And I think it's a shining witness to those outside of the church, a watching world of the all-surpassing worth and beauty of Christ. I remember when a, uh, a godly single friend of mine was working through whether to enter into a relationship or, or move towards a relationship with a guy who was showing interest. But, but she wasn't sure how spiritually helpful to her he would be. So much in her, I could see, was drawn to the love and the companionship and the security and the provision and, and those kinds of things. But she reasoned it through with me. She said, but he's got nothing on Jesus. He's nothing like Jesus. Jesus is so much better. So I'm going to choose him. And it's costly for her. And it's such a challenge and it's such an encouragement to me. What a gift and example of counting all as lost for the sake of Christ. Listen, whether we're married or single, now or in the future, let it be significant how you live that out for the glory of God and the good of others. And let's not make marriage, let's not make romantic love anything of an idol. Let's not make it the ultimate thing because it's not. It's the love of God in Christ. That is the love that is truly and really precious. And the great news is this, God's love for us in Christ doesn't go to the highest bidder. It isn't about how much you bring to the party. It can't be bought and sold. It is freely given to any and all of us who come. The God who is love is not accessed by the rich and the famous and the successful and the clever. In actual fact, in God's upside-down kingdom, it's almost the opposite. It's the poor who are blessed. It's the meek who inherit the earth. It's those who mourn who are comforted. This is a totally priceless and precious love, and yet it's absolutely free for any and all to receive, for any and all to experience. There's nothing we can do to earn it. And yet, we can decline it. We can decline it. So thankful if you're here, and we often have people here with us as a church who are kind of interested or checking out church or coming along with family and friends and maybe just wanting to understand and know a bit more about Jesus and whether the love of God that we bang on about has something for you. So glad you're here. But please, can I just say this? Don't get so close and yet keep yourself so far. In your heart, just keep yourself far away from God. This is a love you are made to know. It's a love that will renew your life, and it is the most precious thing, the most precious thing you could take hold of and you could experience. So would you open up your heart to receive it? If you're not sure about that, or you've got questions about that, ask a friend or, 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 or someone to, to, to talk through that with you. And here's, here's the final thing, much more briefly, to close. The permanence of love. Verse 13 to 14. 
This, this album of, of love songs ends with this couple, married for decades, still madly, truly, deeply in love. It's a little bit sicky, actually, when you, know, um, you, know, when you see your parents kissing or whatever. Um, there's this, this final beautiful duet in, in the garden. And you see here, he's still desperate to hear her voice. And she invites and beckons him once again to come away with her to the spice-laden mountains. And uh, just one last time, we see how the sexual stereotypes uh, are completely smashed through the Song of Songs. He's basically saying, I wish we could just sit down and have a chat. And she's basically saying, let's go to bed together, like uh, as the book closes. And that's it. You might expect verse 15, and they lived happily ever after or something else. But no, it's kind of left open-ended. This unfinished love story just on the cusp of their love and delight in one another. And so we're back where we started in the song. With this kind of unfulfilled longings. This yearning for love with this couple. As they've still got new verses of their love song to be sung. And yet they're assured and confident in their love for one another. And this this is true to life. The open-ended nature of this kind of thing. In our relationships with one another, love is not a destination at which any of us have arrived at. But it's a journey to be undertaken together. It's a song that is still to be sung. It is love in action. But what the song leaves us with as we leave this couple is a clear sense that their love is not the ultimate thing, that our experiences of love and our love and relationships with one another is not an ultimate thing. The song leaves us longing for something more, I think. In fact, that's why it's been so popular for Christians and for the church down through the ages, because Christians have recognized that it awakens within us a a desire for intimacy and love that is only satisfied in a personal relationship with the God who made us and the God who loves us. All human love is incomplete. All human love is impermanent. All human love will let us down one way or another at one time or another, and in fact, multiple times through our lives. But Jesus can be ours forever. And God promises to his people in Jeremiah 31, I have loved you, God says, with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. It is God alone who can say and deliver on that promise. I will always love you. For the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The Lord who has delivered on his promise to love us and his great love for us in that central event of history in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. The Bible ends in a similar way to the Song of Songs. It ends with a husband and a wife moving close to one another in love and delight, assured of the permanence of their love and looking forward to the joy of their story of love continuing on together, a song of love that will be sung and experienced for all eternity. At the end of the Bible, it's not a man and a woman, but it's Jesus and the church, his people, his brides. The very last words spoken in the Bible in Revelation 22, Jesus promises, I am coming soon to be with my people. And the people of the Lord reply, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This is God's love proposal to each and every one of us today. A love that is so powerful. A love that is so precious. And a love that is permanent. A love that knows what is good for us and delivers on it time and time again. 
and a love that will renew our lives if we will let it. A love that will one day renew the world. As we close out the song, we just need to see again what great love God has for us. And let let that renew us this morning. Let me pray and then we will we'll continue to explore and praise God for his love in song and in sharing the Lord's Supper together. But let's pray now. See what great love the Father has loved us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. God, your love is amazing. It is inspiring. It is beyond our understanding and beyond what our hearts can get to grips with. Your love is enduring. It is consistent. It is deep. It is profound. It is wide. It is high. It is, it is always there. It stretches back into the past and it stretches out into the future and it's in this present moment. God, your love for us in Christ We cannot escape it. We cannot get away from it as your people. And your love is so powerful in that it changes us. Lord, I want to pray that by your spirit, you do a work of love in our heart today, that you would soften our hearts, that you would reassure our hearts that they might rest in you. You might motivate and empower our hearts to love as we have been loved by you. Each of us has different situations in which we need to learn what it is to love. Help us to work that out well. And Lord, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Through the work of your spirit in and through your people, we pray. Amen.